We're going to be in Exodus chapter 32 as we continue to move through the book of Exodus. The golden calf is before us. Uh, Before we jump into the first six verses, and that's all we're going to cover tonight, I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 15. Hold a place in Exodus 32. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Once you've got it, if you're able to stand with us, let's stand together. As we read, there's a couple of uh, New Testament passages that comment on the value of learning from the past, specifically learning from the Old Testament. And it begins this way in Romans chapter 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 15, 1. Now, we who are strong, Romans 15, 1, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves, Romans 15, 2. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification or his building up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then one more to your right is 1 Corinthians. The next book over to your right, chapter 10. Uh, Let me just show you one other encouraging section. This is more of the value of the warnings of the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10 Look at verse 6, and then we'll skip ahead to verse 11. Now, these things happened as examples for us. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 6. So that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. The, the they is Old Testament Israel, verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Amen? You can have a seat. Father, thank you so much for the folks that are here. We read those two introductory passages to know that the scriptures give us both encouragement and warning. Encouragement that we could have hope if we're feeling weak tonight or uh, without strength, that we would be one who could strengthen someone else and encourage somebody else. And I know that the room is filled with encouragers. Thank you for them. But also in 1 Corinthians 10, that the things that were written about Old Testament Israel were for our warning. And Corinth was largely a Gentile church. So what was written about Old Testament Israel was written for instruction and warning that we would not do the same things that they did. That we would avoid falling into the traps that so easily entangle us, the sin which so easily entangles us. Lord, help us because we know our proclivity to wander. We know our proclivity perhaps even to turn back to Egypt, as we're going to see tonight. And we know our proclivity even to turn to idols, idols from our past, idols even that are around us at the present. Oh, how we need your help. And we know that you're a God that wants to help. You sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with us You uh, are our advocate in heaven, Jesus. We know we have help from heaven. And and part of our help is the encouragement of the scriptures, that we might learn, that we might avoid doing silly and hurtful things like Israel did. Would you help us in that endeavor, Lord, as we have ears to hear, 
what the Spirit would say to us tonight. May you be glorified in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Exodus 32, the famous story of the golden calf is where we are tonight. And as we are going to read the account together and study through it, we have come to a a bit of a crossroads in the text. If you take a look at the very last verse of Exodus 31, we have these words, and this is uh, a verse that Alex uh, left because it leads into the next section, and here's what it says. When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he, the he is God, gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, and then famously written by the finger of God. Now you could say, meanwhile, back at the camp, because what's happened is that Moses has gone up to receive these instructions, and specifically, he's received now the instructions for the tabernacle and the worship that will happen within the nation of Israel. He's gotten the uh, dimensions of the tabernacle, the furnishings for the tabernacle, uh, even the people who are going to make the uh, furnishings, etc., the holy anointing oil, the priestly garments, the priests that will be set apart for God's purposes. It's all been laid out. But all of this has happened as Moses has been up on the mountain and he has been receiving these things from the Lord. And so the, the people of Israel have been waiting for him. And you might recall that the Bible tells us that Moses was up on the mountain, remember, 40 days and 40 nights. Now, when we study our Bible, the number 40 in the Bible is a number that has to do with testing and even the idea of perfecting. Jesus was in the wilderness, tempted by the devil for 40 days. Israel ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. This number 40 is very significant. And in this case, when Moses goes up on the mountain, you could see the number 40, 40 days and 40 nights, as a number of testing. How will Israel do as they wait upon the Lord for further instruction? Now, something that you need to know is that they have already gotten some instruction from the Lord and agreed upon it, agreed to it. And this is, uh, let's backtrack just for a second. Go to Exodus 23. Let me remind you, because uh, from chapter 25 on, what has happened is uh, Moses has been up on the mountain. So we've been seeing what's happened between God and Moses, but it's easy to forget what's happening with the people. So if you go back to chapter 23, look at the last two verses of chapter 23. It reads this way. God says, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods, small g, Exodus 23, 33. They shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God, already before the promised land is even going to happen, God is warning against what? The idea of idolatry, the idea of false gods and goddesses. And so that when when, uh, chapter 24 unfolds, God invites, he says to Moses, come up to the Lord. And the group comes up, and I'm just giving you a little bit of backtracking, but notice what happens. This is verse three of Exodus 24. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, something you need to remember is Moses does go up to God and come back down several times. And on one of the times that he's come back down, he has shared with them the Ten Commandments. 
They already know them. They've already been laid out before the people. So there is knowledge of what God requires. So notice what it says. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, 24-4. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, probably representing the people and the Lord. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people. I mentioned to you this when we went through this last time, that this is what's called ketubah language, marriage covenant contract language. On Sinai, God is making a covenant with Israel and he says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. The requirements or the commitments are being made by the groom and the, the bride, if you will. And then it's sealed in the blood. So he takes the book. He reads it to them. Uh, the blood is sprinkled. And it says, all the Lord has spoken. What did they say? We will do. We will be obedient. How many times have you said, okay. I'm never going to do that again. Right now, I make my stand. I will not go back to that. Perhaps it would be an addiction. Perhaps it would be a response. And you've made a declaration, perhaps. I've made my share. All right, I'm not going to ever do that again. You're not going to find me in that line again, doing that thing again. But we know how weak we can be. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, notice, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And now in verses 9 through 11, there's a beautiful covenant meal. Following the contract, there's a covenant meal. They see the God of Israel, verse 10, as they go up. They eat and drink. That's the end of 11. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, verse 12, and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur, remember Aaron, he'll be a central part of this story, are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was something like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain. 40 days and 40 nights. Now, from chapter 25 all the way to the end of 31, what we've had before us is instruction to Moses as he went up for 40 days and 40 nights. And specifically, he's getting, obviously, the tablets of stone, but he's, get, he's gotten all the instruction about the tabernacle, and we've been learning about that together if you've been with us, and we've seen all that detail. And now that is done. And now all the instruction has been given and Moses receives the two stone tablets. That's 31, 18. And Moses is about to go down now. 
with his, fl- his face glowing, ready to get going. You ever had one of those mountaintop experiences? And you think everybody back in the valley must feel the same way I do. You go up to the retreat, you are surrounded by nature, you listen to praise songs, you turn off some of the devices, you get into the word of God, you get some great fellowship, and down the mountain you come, and you're glowing. Ah! And you think, all right, this is it. Everybody's going to be on board. I'm bringing down the law, the the two talents, come on. Meanwhile, back at the camp, it ain't looking good. Because the people have taken a different posture. Moses has been up with the Lord, but the people have been down in the valley. And here's how the text unfolds before us in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Exodus 32, after we see all the introductory uh, sections that I've read, it says, now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, we read about the 40 days and 40 nights, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. Now, apparently, all it took was a little bit more than a month for the people to return to Egypt in their hearts. Now, one thing that we do need to say is that they've only been out of Egypt for a couple of months, right? I mean, it's been a relatively short time. And for 400 years, the people of Israel were in bondage in Egypt and it's, you know, one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of the people, if you know what I'm saying. And so we all, from an application standpoint, we come out of the world, right? Some of you grew up in the church. Some of you did not. You came out of Egypt with all of its idols, all of its gods and goddesses with a small g. And when you did, you came into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ Perhaps you said the sinner's prayer. You got baptized. You were born again of the Holy Spirit. And that's wonderful. And what a blessing that is. But that doesn't guarantee that you're not going to be tempted to go back to Egypt. In fact, I would say probably more of you than not have been tempted on many occasions to return to Egypt and perhaps to return there when the Lord didn't make sense. When perhaps there was something like we would call a divine delay. Sometimes God takes longer than we think he should take. Sometimes we have questions about what's going on. The people are at the bottom of the mountain. Moses has gone up on the mountain. He walked into fire. Some people might start chattering in the camp. You know, people don't walk into fire and come back. However, he has done that on several occasions. We must remember he's gone up and come back. So that's not the issue. Do they not know where Moses is? I think they know exactly where he is. He's up on the mountain again. They're quite aware where he is. But the timeline is not in full agreement with their timeline. They are growing impatient. Now, they are exactly where God wants them in the wilderness, waiting upon the Lord. They are going through a test, 40 days and 40 nights. However, they have grown, gone, uh, or grown impatient. Now, I don't know if it's all of them. I don't know if the Levites are going to try to take exception to this. We don't really know for sure. But we know that the man who's supposed to be the first high priest of Israel is at the center of this sin, at the center of what you you would call the fall of Israel. 
Some scholars have compared this section to Genesis 3, the famous fall chapter. And one writer said that this section is almost like someone committing adultery on their wedding night. Because Israel has made a commitment to God. They've heard the ketubah. They've heard the covenant contract. They've heard the requirements. And they have responded in the affirmative. I mentioned to you that when I do a wedding, I will say, you know, I'll give a charge. Do you promise to do this, 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 and this? And the, the groom will say, I will. I'll say to the almost bride, do you promise to do this, this, this? And she says, I will. And then they'll do vows to one another. Do you take this person to be so forth and so on? And they seal the covenant with family watching. And they say, as God is my witness, I give you my promise. Well, Israel has made that commitment. All that the Lord has said, we will do. We will be obedient. And then the blood sealed the covenant and a covenant meal. But it didn't take long, did it? Until the, the way they talk about Moses, you would think that he was just some stranger. That guy who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know where he's gone, right? We need a new leader. <laughs> we need a new God. That's how fickle the people are. But these things have been written for our instruction and for our encouragement that we would not repeat the same mistakes that Israel made. Amen? And so we need to learn what are the things that move us away from the Lord? What are the gods with a small g that cause us to be enamored at the first sign of trouble, the people's tendency was to return to Egypt. And I think the more that you mature in the Lord, the more perhaps you will fight that. But I think it's an ever-present thing that you have to be aware of, that when the Lord doesn't make sense, when things are difficult, when there are divine delays, it can be difficult, and you can start to say, what do I do now? What is going on with God? And perhaps you start thinking about going back to Egypt. And maybe that's, for you, something that you would say, that's exactly what I tend to do. I tend to want to return to the same old things that I'm used to. Is he coming back? You can hear the talk in the camp. Has he permanently abandoned us? Has he left us to find our own way? Well, all these things come up, and Ephraim the Syrian wisely commented, that the absence of Moses simply gave the Israelites the opportunity, listen to this, quote, to worship openly what they had been worshiping already in their hearts, close quote. You know, sometimes at the first sign of trouble, it will reveal where we're at, what kind of depth we have. I heard a phone call into a radio program, and uh, the caller was talking about marriage and talking about commitment and stuff like that and vows that are taken and reasons that people could perhaps, you know, move on from a marriage and all of that. And the host of the show said these words, and I thought that they were very powerful. He said, look, when we make an oath before God, when we make a commitment, it all comes down to one word, and the word is integrity. And here's the question. When you make a commitment or a vow, are you the kind of person that keeps it or the kind of person that breaks it? And what will it take for you to say, well, yeah, I said that before a group of witnesses, and yeah, I said that, and, and I sealed that before God, but now things are different. 
Now I'm tempted to move away from that. And it does come down to integrity. I want you to think about it in another sense. Think about how many people have made public professions of faith in Jesus Christ. We were just talking in the prayer room and someone was sharing about a person who was a pastor who says they're no longer a Christian. Well, what is that all about? Did not that person enter into a new covenant with the Lord? Did not that person make a public proclamation in their baptism? Yes. Did they not say to the Lord, okay, if you're inviting me into this new covenant, I will. Isn't that the essence of a sinner's prayer? Whether there's a sinner's prayer in the Bible or not. When one says, I will follow you. When one says, yes, you will be my Lord and my Savior. That is a covenant. We call it the new covenant. Sealed in the blood of Christ. Participated in, in the uh, communion when we take the Lord's Supper. Amen? It is a, you could say the covenant was ratified in the blood. But we, we go into baptismals and we take of the Lord's Supper. And you could say in some ways we renew the commitment but the commitment is there. We are married to the Lord. We are the bride of Christ. Amen? Amen? But just like in human marriages, they all don't always end really well. We'd like to think that when people make vows to one another and commit before God and use oath languages, that they're going to ride off into the sunset together until they go home to be with the Lord. In fact, the vows do say, till death <laughs> do we part, right? But here's the thing. Israel got impatient. And the covenant vow that they had made not too long before this was now thrown to the wayside. And I'm going to ask you a question that I think is something you all need to wrestle with because it's one I've got to wrestle with. When I say I'm committed, when I make my commitment declaration, am I true to it? I think that this is really what the Lord wants of all of us, yet I know that all of us would say, yes, there are times when we are tempted. There are times when maybe one party does not keep the covenant. We all know the complications and uh, things that go with that. But here they are, and they have now gathered around Aaron. The idea of gathering around Aaron, if you take a look at verse 1, when they, the people assembled about Aaron, the three times that, that that is used, that word is used by Moses, all has to do with aggression and pressure. They haven't just gathered around Aaron as in the idea of, hey, let's talk. There's an ominous threat. They gather around Aaron with this idea in mind. You are going to do what we want you to do. They are now about to wrest control for themselves. Someone might put it this way. If, if this bus ain't going anywhere, then I'm going to take the wheel and drive the bus. It's time to get going. Make a God for us, Aaron. And this is what happens. The people gather around. We don't know how many people it was, but the idea is that Aaron was being pressured by the people. Peer pressure. We think it's only for kids in the schoolyard. Oh, that ain't true. Peer pressure happens to all of us, right? In today's culture, peer pressure is about ethics. It's about choices. It's about morality. 
It's about a lot of different things, amen? And there are things that are happening like a tidal wave that are coming at the people of God. And many are giving way, brethren. Many are, it's too much for them. They, they don't want to stand against the tide, and I get why. And I think we need great wisdom in our day. But here is Aaron, and they surround him, and here's what they ask. They say, come make us a God. The word God there is Elohim. It's actually plural. It could be uh, gods, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Make us a God that's more suitable for us, one that can show up right now on demand. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading a, a commentary, and the commentator said, you know, the thing about golden calves is that they have eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but they cannot hear. They demand nothing from you. There's no reason to fear them because they are nothing and so they ask nothing of you. And for many people, it's preferable to go in this direction, to make something in the image that I want to make it so that I can go the way I want to go. This is uh, Psalm 106. Let's turn together, Psalm 106. So we have Old Testament commentary on this scene in a few places. Psalm 106 is one of them. And the psalmist is recounting the events that are before us, Psalm 106. And here's what he says. This is beginning in verse 9. Psalm 106, verse 9. Thus he, God, rebuked the Red Sea, 106.9, and dried it up. And he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of of the enemy, all these great moments in the history of the Exodus. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Psalm 106, verse 12. And they believed his words and they sang his praise. Yet notice what happened. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Down to verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb, and worshiped a molten image. Horeb is another name for Sinai. And thus they exchanged their glory, that is God, for the image of an ox that eats grass. Some of you, uh, this is sounding very familiar because it's Romans 1.23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for corruptible beasts and so forth. That's Romans 1 verse 23. And so they exchanged their glory, their God, for an image, an ox that eats grass, and they forgot their Savior. I wrote in my notes, Oh, Lord, I am sorry for all that we put you through and all that you put up with us, with from us and from this rebel world. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Time and again, God delivered them, saved them. We have to remember back to Exodus 32 that they were getting the manna every day from God, that the visible presence of God was up on Mount Sinai. It's not like they couldn't see the glory of God and didn't have the provision of God. 
And yet they still asked for a God or a golden calf. And for us, we have every day, we see the glory of God in the heavens and what he's made. We see his provisions in our lives every day, amen? Yet we are still, you know, sometimes moved or tempted to go that way, the way of the idol. And this is what they did too. And so they gather around Aaron. And Aaron said to them, Exodus 32, 2, no, don't do it. <laughs> no, this shouldn't happen. Just be a little bit more patient. Moses will be back. Hey, I was up in, in, in uh, a few days ago and I saw God. I saw the God of Israel. We ate a covenant meal before him. Do you remember the blood of the covenant? Do you remember the promises that we made to God? None of that. No objections from Aaron. No, uh, you know, back and forth. Nothing from Moses' brother, the first high priest of Israel. I've ever been there before. The pressure of the multitude comes, maybe catches you off guard. And instead of taking a stand, you back down rather quickly. Maybe it's at work. Maybe people talk about a, a, a contemporary issue like abortion or homosexuality. And it's very difficult to speak out because you know what's going to happen, right? Maybe you'll be the lone voice of, of, you know, on the biblical side, if you will. Maybe you'll be seen in a certain way. I don't know what was going on with Aaron. I don't know how much this had built up over time. I don't know how intimidating the people at the front of the circle looked. I don't know if Aaron uh, maybe feared for his life. Maybe Aaron had heard the talk. Maybe this was building up over time and Aaron had heard people talking. He ain't coming back. We gotta do something. He ain't coming back. Maybe Aaron began to believe he was the next leader. Maybe Moses wasn't coming back. Maybe God would take him up to heaven. Who knows? So Aaron had his issues. He was a human. He had his doubts. And he says to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Not one objection, not one question, nothing. Oh, Aaron, what happened to you? What is going on? And these dynamics, you know, it can be hard. I want you to imagine probably a pretty significant group of people coming to Aaron and demanding of him. Look ahead just for a second, 32, 21. Moses said to Aaron when he confronts him later on, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, don't let your anger, uh, let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go up before us for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And so I said to them, whoever has any gold, let him tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Poof! What am I going to do, you know? You know how the people are. You know how difficult and prone to evil they can be. So I said, all right, give me your gold, give me your earrings, and we threw it into the fire, and poof! Out came this calf. One of the lamest Excuses in the Bible comes from the first high priest of Israel. And I know that you and I can say 
We've all probably had our moments when we've surprised ourselves and perhaps even disappointed ourselves when there's been peer pressure. It can be hard to take a stand. And Moses asked Aaron, what did they do to you? What happened to you? Well, the people, you know how they are. And so Israel's sin was egregious. And God will say to Moses that he's going to wipe the people of Israel off the face of the earth. And Moses intercedes. Apparently, says one writer, few things get under God's skin as much as disloyalty and faithlessness. Yet God declares that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And he does forgive them, and they do move forward together. That's our God, amen? I mean, the number of times that I can think of, especially in my early days as a believer, saying, I'm never gonna do this again, I'll never do that again, and going back to the gods of Egypt. I did it. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. And the good news about God's grace is that my falls started to spread out more and more until finally those things were in the rearview mirror. It does happen, and there is hope for all of us, yet we know the proneness of our heart, especially when we're not immersed in the things of God. And so he took these things, notice from their hand, verse 4, he fashioned or shaped it with, an, with a graving tool. So we know he lied to Moses. He actually made this thing. And he made it into a molten calf. The calf is a young bull, a symbol of fertility in Egypt and other places and of power. And they said, when uh, Aaron had put this thing together, and I will tell you that having to you know, kind of get the gold down to a place where he could work with it and then construct this thing had to take some time. And so there was a process here. He got the gold, and then he worked with it, melted it down, worked with it, did whatever he did to finally construct this calf. Why did he make a calf? Why a golden calf? Well, it's something that he knew. He came from a land where the calf was worshipped. Maybe this is the only thing that he could think of in terms of a form, or at least maybe it was the most prominent one that he could think of. And so he makes this golden calf, fashions it with a tool, and then the people respond with these words. They said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Can you imagine being Aaron? And, you know, you, you've walked this out to the point where you've actually constructed an idol, and then the people acclaim the God, the false God, and... I don't know what Aaron's emotions must have been, but I think Aaron must have dropped his head in shame. This is not our God. Our God is up on the mountaintop giving Moses instructions. By the way, the first two commandments that he's going to walk down with are, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, don't make an idol and bow down to it. Oy vey. The first two they've already blown. And that's why when Moses comes down with the tablets, he throws them to the ground and smashes them because that's essentially what they did with the law of God. They smashed the ketubah. They smashed the covenant. They, they wrecked it. And so Moses' actions are in keeping with what happened here. 
Isaiah 40 puts it this way when it comes to idols. It says, to whom then will you liken God? Isaiah 40, 18. What likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too poor for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Habakkuk 2, 18 through 20 says this, What profit is the idol when it, its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! Or to a dumb stone, Arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all inside of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk 2, 18 through 20. And so now they have a cow. One writer put it this way, don't have a cow. <laughs> People often in our culture, they say, holy cow, right? Well, this is an unholy cow. And in Egypt, they had some special quarters for the bull. It was one of their many gods and goddesses. And it had a special precinct. And if you recall, if you were back with us some time ago, I showed you mummified pictures. You know how they've, they've found the tombs of some pharaohs and they're mummified and they're wrapped in all this cloth and, and they've found the treasures and so forth. Well, they have also found in excavations mummified bulls wrapped and mummified because this was something that the Egyptians worshipped to the degree that they would even treat them as they treated the pharaohs. Weird, right? But true. And so Aaron makes the golden calf, fashions it. Uh, Shane, you preached on Oholiab and Bezalel, right? And they were supposed to make the items for the tabernacle, construct it. I sure hope that Aaron didn't call them to help with this. Because God had set aside Oholiab and Bezalel to make the holy furnishings of the temple, not to make some golden calf. Not to use their skills to make something like this, which God would call an abomination. And there's an application there for us as well. That we shouldn't take our skills that God has given us and use them for abominable things. There are gonna be some things in culture that are neutral, of course, some of you, you know, you, you, work, you work in the secular world and some things are just simply neutral. But don't take the gifts that God has given you and turn them in to create idols that are abominable. I had a discussion with a, a guy at the gym, this is a while back, and I was prying a little bit, asking him questions, and he was taking some positions on culture and morality that were certainly not biblical, not what we would call Christian and so I pressed him a little bit as to why he had uh, come to those conclusions. And he told me that he had used to be a Christian, but he had some real issues with, you know, uh, what the church believed. And, you know, it was all the typical stuff. Hypocrites and, boy, we're too hard on people and da-da-da-da. So he said, yeah, I was once a believer and I walked away. And then I found out in the midst of the conversation that he was working at an establishment that he wasn't particularly proud of. And it was a dilemma for him. I could see it in his eyes that 
you know, he still, he had the knowledge of God there and he, he was there at this place. I'll just put it this way. Not a very godly place. About the opposite of what you would consider walking into a church. It was about the opposite of that. And he seemed like a brick wall. It was me and another guy that we often would witness together to people. And he, he, we couldn't penetrate anything. He shot down everything, you know, calloused, uh, defiant almost. And then I saw him a couple months later. And he had given his heart back to the Lord, quit that job, and was walking with Christ again. And when I talked to him, I thought, this guy is about as far from the kingdom of God as one could ever be. But right underneath the surface was a man who knew better, a man who had gone back to Egypt with a ton of regrets. And he, and he knew he was in the wrong place. And so he just got kind of a friendly prompting. You could call it a, a nudge from the spirit. And I left there thinking I had not even penetrated one iota of this guy's you know, life. But he was thinking about what had happened. And when Aaron saw this, that is the calf that he had constructed and the people's acclaiming the God. This is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He built an altar before it, verse five, and Aaron made a proclamation of his own. And he said, tomorrow shall be what? A feast to the Lord. Now, for those of you who've been around for any time, I keep telling you, anytime you see the Lord in that all caps there, that's the covenant name of God that is Yahweh. And what Aaron does here is he realizes, I believe, that he has baptized blasphemy. He's baptized a synchronistic approach to worship. He's, he's constructed an idol. And I think you see Aaron backpedaling here a little bit, trying to save it, if you will, and says something like this. Okay, we, I made your God for you. Here it is. And tomorrow we're going to have a feast, but we'll have a feast to what? To who? To the Lord, to the covenant name Yahweh. Aaron is trying to recover this whole scene. But God said, when you make an idol like this and try to worship it alongside of me, I won't have it. God does not believe in smorgasbord approaches to worship. A little bit of this from over here, a little bit of that. No, he wants your exclusive allegiance. One God, monotheism, not multiple gods, not we'll, we'll worship the bull along with Yahweh. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. But this is what Aaron does because Aaron, this is pretty much all that Aaron has. The calf is there. The people are excited. And so he says, okay, here's what we'll do. Tomorrow we'll have a feast now, you all know that Israel has seven feasts on their religious calendar, Leviticus 23. They've already celebrated the feast of Passover. We know they went out during the Passover, out from Egypt. So a feast is a logical thing in Yahweh's uh, worship and celebration, but not with a golden calf sitting there. And this is another point I want to make to you. And this is largely our culture. Now think about it. People will say, God bless you. They will say, I'm blessed. We will have speeches with God bless uh, the United States of America. We'll have God bless yous when you sneeze. <laughs> you get it, right? We have a culture very much 
founded in the Judeo-Christian ethics and scriptures. Yet we have a culture who wants in one hand to have the golden calf and yet also bring Yahweh into it. Of course, especially when they need him. Perhaps at major holidays too, we'll go into the malls and the, the, the carols will play of one born in a manger, one who is mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. You know what I'm saying, right? But the culture says we want the golden calf and yeah, we'll proclaim a festival to the Lord, to Yahweh, right? But it just doesn't work that way. And this is something that's happened a couple times in our Bible. I want to give you a couple interesting cross-references. Don't have to turn there. After Gideon won his uh, mighty battle with the Lord doing all of it, Gideon took some uh, gold from all the people, gold earrings. This is Judges 8, 23 through 27. And the people said, we want you to be our leader. Gideon said, no, but you can give me some gold. So they gave 1,700 shekels of gold. They threw them on a, a garment. And Gideon, Judges 8.27, made it into an ephod, placed it in his city. The city is Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household Judges 8.27. So here it is. Gideon wins this incredible victory with just 300 soldiers. God's power, God's majesty. And the people say, you're a great guy, Gideon. We want you to be our leader. Oh, no, 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 I can't do that. But I will take a little silver and gold, a little silver and gold. We'll, we'll pass the hat here. And they pass it around and they create an ephod. And the ephod became a stumbling block for the people of Israel. This is 1 Kings 12.28. This is Jeroboam, afraid that Rehoboam would get all the, the, the uh, people following him. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, 1 Kings 12, 28, and he said to them, is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt, 1 Kings 12, 28. And they had one in Dan up in the north and one in Bethel down south, and the people worshiped the golden calf. You've heard it said, there's nothing new <laughs> under the sun, right? And the golden calves look different today, but we kind of know what they are, right? Why would Jeroboam follow Aaron's folly? Why did he not learn the lesson? Final verse for tonight. And so the next day, they rose early, the people did, and here's what they did. Now, Aaron had called for the feast, right? the next day. And so he said, tomorrow we'll have a feast. And so the people rose up early. They offered burnt offerings, which had been uh, laid out to be offered to the Lord. Peace offerings, another offering from Leviticus. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you have an NIV, it says to indulge in revelry. The word for play here is the Hebrew word tasak. It means to laugh to mock, to make sport of or toy with. The Hebrew word sometimes has sexual overtones in the idea of caressing or, or even uh, sexual intimacy. It could will be walked out to that. And so the people did some things that would be typical of a feast. They, they gave uh, burnt offerings, peace offerings, 
Eating and drinking, nothing surprising there unless, unless they were overdoing it. And then here's the last part. They rose up to play or to indulge in revelry. Now, if some of you have seen the Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, he shows the people around the golden calf and they're all dancing around and it looks like they're drinking to excess and there's some implied things there. But we don't know for sure exactly what they were doing. But we have two New Testament commentaries on this passage and we're done, says the preacher. The first one is Acts 7. New Testament is going to comment on this. So here's Stephen preaching to the Sanhedrin, a radical, fiery sermon about their past and their mistakes. And here's what he says. Acts 7, verse 39. He says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him. And in their hearts, Acts 7, 39, what did they do? In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. And just pause there for a second. Stephen diagnoses the problem. Their heart was the problem. Ezekiel 14.3 talks about that we create idols in our hearts that stumble us. Well, Acts 7.39 says their hearts turned back there. And they said to Aaron, make for us gods, notice, who will go before us for this Moses has, who has led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Ramphah. The images which you made to worship, I also remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. Just as he spoke to Moses, to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And then a little bit more, you know, um, chastening or chastising of them. And then he says these words in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised, where? In heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. They had not learned the lesson. They had turned aside to Egypt in their hearts. Their God, with a small g, was now the temple facilities and their religious system but not the God of the Bible. The Messiah had come into their midst and risen from the dead, and yet they were still rejecting the truth of the gospel. Now, the one other that we've touched on is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go there, and we'll end tonight with this. Uh, Alex had shared a prayer from Nehemiah 9 that you might want to read on your own. Uh, Nehemiah 9, uh, about repentance over these things, which I think would be a good um, devotion this week, Nehemiah 9, 13 through 20. So just maybe read that on your own. But this is the last section I want to show you. And this is the mention of this scene in commentary from the Apostle Paul. He says these words. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave, crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, 
as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now that's from Numbers 25. 3,000 fell as a result of this sin in, in uh, Exodus. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, what's your Bible say? Flee from idolatry. Well, Father, as we read this golden calf incident, we see the propensity of your people to oftentimes be intoxicated with Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. It's all around us, Lord. None of us are immune to its pull. And Lord, we want to come before you with sincere and honest hearts and say thank you for the number of times when we have gravitated back there and you've been so merciful and so patient. By all rights, Lord, you could have started over and wiped out Israel for this sin, and yet you didn't. How many times they grieved your heart in the desert. They pained the Holy One of Israel, and yet you are so patient, so good, and so merciful. And Lord, this, these events lead us really to the gospel because they show the deep need of all of us we can have God in our midst, manna from heaven, and still turn back to Egypt. And yet you brought the ultimate remedy. You brought the Son of God, God the Son, Messiah, who walked in the fallen footsteps of Israel, got baptized at the Jordan, went out into the desert, faced temptations for 40 days, overcame them, then died on the cross for us, resurrected from the dead to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In fact, to do for us what we have failed to do. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We are here tonight because we have heard it and believed it and experienced the beauty of your goodness in our lives. And yet we know, Lord, even with that, we'd admit that we are often tempted to go that way. We just read about a way of escape that you always provide. We just read we need to flee from idolatry. It's for us, the church, not just for Old Testament Israel or for people who are not in the new covenant. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. But may we learn the lessons of the golden calf, not to repeat the mistakes of the past. And if we have, even this week, maybe there's someone listening, they're like, man, oh, this, this is beating me up because this is me. You always provide a way of escape, a way out, Lord, a new beginning. And I pray that each of us would grab hold of that, Lord, because you are good 
and your mercies are new every morning and really every moment of every day. So bless your people tonight as they've come to hear your word, seal your word in our hearts.